after ruining my legacy with shameful deeds, will follow in the wake of Theseus, my life a total wreck. Whoever prefers wealth or might to the possession of good friends is surely a total fool. From the closing lines of Heracles Mad, a play by Euripides. Welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this is the 21st episode of the second series of podcasts about the history of Western civilization. I call this second series of podcasts the Greek Sun because the ancient Greek world was an explosion of light, knowledge, and energy that the West is still trying to comprehend. The Greeks made developments in politics, war, philosophy, science, math, and nearly every other area of human endeavor, developments which continue to impact our own understanding of the world. This episode will be the second chapter about Greek drama as it flourished in the 5th century before Christ, at the height of the classical era, and during the disastrous Peloponnesian War that broke out in 431 BC. Now, before we continue with the episode, I encourage you to check out my website, western-traditions.org. There you can find all the episodes, as well as some helpful maps and pictures. You can also buy some Western Traditions merchandise or otherwise support the podcast directly through PayPal or the Patreon options. You can also listen to this podcast on Amazon Music, Spotify, YouTube, and a number of other platforms. But wherever you listen, please remember to like, share, subscribe, and comment. And now, let's raise the curtain again on Greek theater in classical ancient Greece. After Aeschylus, Sophocles is remembered as another great Athenian poet and playwright. He was born in 495 BC the same year as Pericles, so he was some 30 years younger than the other playwright Aeschylus. Along with Euripides, who I will also discuss in this episode, each of these three playwrights have a legendary connection to the Battle of Salamis, in which Athens defeated the Persian navy and may very well have saved the West from Eastern domination. The connection is described as follows. Aeschylus was a grown man in 480 BC and Therefore, he personally fought at the Battle of Salamis. Sophocles would have been about 15 years of age at the time, so he would have been just a little too young to fight, but he would have participated then in the Boys' Chorus, which was part of the celebrations that followed the victory. And Euripides, another famous playwright, was born that very year on the island of Salamis itself. There's no telling if the legend is completely true, but the men's birth dates are known, so the connection is real on some level. Anyway, little more is known about the family of Sophocles or about the man himself, and there's not even agreement on whether his father was rich or poor. We do know that Sophocles presented his first play in 468 BC at, at one of those dramatic competitions which I described in the first Greek drama episode. With this, with his very first play, Sophocles defeated the great Aeschylus and won first prize. Sadly, though history tells us of this victory, we do not know what that play was, as it is among Sophocles' many lost plays. 
In his whole career, spanning from 468 BC until his death in 406 BC, some 62 years of writing, Sophocles would write more than 120 plays. The Ravages of Time, to which we are all subject, however, has left us with just seven of this master's works remaining in existence. Now, in the introductory episode to the classical era of Greece, I described not only the legend of Oedipus, but to some extent I also described the play about this particular myth written by Sophocles. Sophocles actually wrote three plays about Oedipus, beginning with Oedipus Rex, or Oedipus the King. He later wrote Oedipus at Colonus, which was about Oedipus's life in exile, and he wrote a third play about the actions of Oedipus's daughter, Antigone, after her brothers died in an ill-fated rebellion against Cleon, who had assumed power in Thebes after the fall of her father, Oedipus. Now, it's easy to imagine that these three sequential plays are another example of the trilogies written by Greek poets, which I mentioned in the previous dramatic episode. But, in fact, Sophocles wrote these plays at different stages in his life, and the second play, Oedipus at Colonus, was actually the last play that he's ever known to have written. Now, according to Aristotle, it was Sophocles who added the third actor into his place for the first time, continuing the development of drama out of the dithyrambic hymns to the gods from the previous century until they became the stage presentations, not unlike our own stage plays today. Now, like virtually all Athenian men, Sophocles was also a part-time soldier. In 440 BC, at the age of 55, Sophocles actually served under Pericles as one of the ten generals that held rotating commands over the Athenian forces when they went to put down the rebellion on the island of Samos. Except for these services performed in the military, though, Sophocles otherwise never left Athens. Now, other playwrights like Aeschylus and Euripides and many others were often invited to other cities to write and perform or even just to take up an honored residence there, just like many universities used to have writers in residence on their campuses. But not Sophocles. And surely he must have had offers to go and be honored in some way in other realms. The plays of the Athenians were generally held in high regard as far away as the colonies in Sicily. No, Sophocles chose, like Socrates later would, to live his entire life in what he probably considered to be the greatest city on earth. And interestingly, the life of Sophocles really paralleled the rise of Athens to the heights of power and influence and its fall from grace. He was born just five years before the Battle of Marathon, which catapulted Athens onto the world stage as a giant killer when Athenian forces defeated the Persian invaders on the beach. And Sophocles died in 406 BC, just two years before Athens' final surrender to the Spartans and their allies. During Sophocles' life, really all the greatest events of Athenian history would occur. Now, in addition to his three plays about Oedipus and his children, four other plays of Sophocles survive. He wrote Ajax, a play about the suicide of the legendary warrior during the Trojan War. Sophocles also wrote a play called Electra, about a daughter of Agamemnon who, along with her brother Orestes, seeks revenge on her mother and her mother's lover in her father's name. Another of Sophocles' plays is known by two names, The Women of Trachis or the Trachiniae. The play's events concern the death of Heracles at the hands of his wife Deonera. Finally, Sophocles also wrote Philoctetes, a play about a quest involving Odysseus 
and a son of Achilles during the Trojan War, in which they seek the aid of Philoctetes, a son of Heracles. Now, you might notice some common threads or themes in all the descriptions of the plays here. Besides the famous concentration of plays around the Oedipus legend, Sophocles also writes a lot about the Trojan War and about Heracles. In fact, in the timeline of these plays, Heracles' life somehow overlaps with the Trojan War. I have spoken in previous episodes about how the mythological world of Greek heroes existed on a timeline that was anything but strictly chronological, in which heroes such as Theseus, Heracles, Odysseus, the prophet Tiresias, and others all somehow coexist in the same universe of great deeds. Anyway, the appearance of Heracles here is not coincidental. Heracles, at least during the 5th century BC, was a very popular focus of Athenian lore, as was the Trojan War and its associated heroes. Euripides, the subject of the next segment in this episode, also wrote plays about Heracles and his children. Now, something else might be apparent just from my brief description of Sophocles' plays, and that is the prominent role of women in Greek theater. Now, in the latest episodes, I have made note of how Athenian men were not in any way feminist, and they kept their women in very subordinate roles. Pericles, for example, in his, in his funeral oration, which I mentioned in the last episode, at the end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War, said that the best that the widows of war veterans could do with their remaining lives was to simply not be spoken of, either for good or bad reasons. Yet, we see here that poets of the same time period, and, and all of them rugged soldiers as well, these are not effete grad students churning out pretentious plays and complaining about culture and the government. No, these are all men of war, yet they did not hesitate to portray women as powerful figures in their art. They may have been subordinate in some sense, these women, but Greek men clearly respected the female impact on society and their capacity for both creation and destruction. And I'm not just talking about Sophocles here either. In Aeschylus's plays, the emphasis on powerful women may have been a little more muted, but with the plays of Euripides, we will see this pattern even more reinforced. And speaking of Euripides... The life of Euripides also encompassed the rise and fall of Athens. Born in the very year of the battle Salamis in 480 BC on that very island for which the tide-turning battle was named, Euripides, like Sophocles, would also die in the year 406 BC at age 74 as Athens approached its 5th century nadir. Now, this playwright trained to be an athlete as a young man, and he was allegedly a good boxer before he tried painting and then turned, finally, to penning plays. He wrote his very first play at 18 years of age, and he continued to write until the very end. In fact, his last victory in the dramatic competitions that the Athenians loved to hold, this last victory came posthumously in the year 405 BC, a year after his death, when his son, who was also named Euripides, presented a play that the poet had apparently just completed before passing away. During his career, Euripides came to know many of the most famous names in Greek history, and he was beloved even after his death, when his plays continued to be cast. Plato and Aristotle both quote this, po this poet more than any other, and Socrates was said to be only interested in the plays of Euripides. 
Yet Euripides was not known for his, his gregariousness at all. There is no record of him having any significant participation in the politics or the wars of Athens either. According to the legend that surrounds the man, anyway, he was generally gloomy, and he reputedly lived alone most of his adult life in a cave on Salamis, overlooking the sea. He did not enjoy the company of women and was surrounded only by his books. In the 50 years of his writing career, he wrote and presented more than 80 plays. Only 19 of those plays have survived intact to this day, but that is much more than from anyone else from this time period. Now, this is perhaps a testimony to his popularity, since most of the writing that we have lost from the old world is due to people simply not making new copies of the scrolls and books, which do not last long without great efforts at preservation. Anyway, Euripides' plays were obviously much more frequently copied and preserved than any other work, given that so many have survived and are completely intact at that. Now, down through the centuries since this time, though, scholars have identified Euripides' place in the history of Greek tragedy in very distinct manners. Some have seen his work as representing a decline in quality, yet it was Euripides' plays that were more often copied and preserved in the centuries that followed. Reclusive, though he may have been, in the last years of his life, as the Peloponnesian War raged on, Euripides was invited to live at the court of the Macedonian king, Archelaus. He went, and he became a favorite of the court there. In fact, when Euripides died, the king of Macedonia cut off his hair to dis publicly display the magnitude of his grief for the loss of this man. Euripides died just a few months before his fellow playwright Sophocles, who himself wore garments of mourning in public to mark the death of such a great colleague and rival, before he himself also succumbed to eternity. The topics covered by Euripides in his plays cover a wide gamut, but listeners should not be surprised by now that there is a concentration in a few areas. The Trojan War is a big favorite, including plays about its root causes, about the events of the war, and its aftermath. Like all Greek playwrights of the time, apparently, he wrote much about Agamemnon and his dynasty, but also about other elementary figures in the war. Interestingly, Euripides also not infrequently wrote about powerful women and also wrote very considerately, considerately of the fate of the foes of Greece, such as in his play called The Trojan Women, which is a moving depiction of the suffering of the Trojan women who became captives of the Greeks after the fall of their fabled city. He also wrote many plays about general topics of Greek myth with a focus on Heracles. I have spoken in a previous podcast about how Heracles was more than just a muscular tough guy for the Athenians, but also a man whose suffering and struggles were much to be admired. He also wrote a play called The Cyclops, and it's actually the only remaining satire play that we have from this time period, even though those plays would have been quite numerous. Satire plays were known for their absurd sense of humor and their often gross sexuality. The play itself concerns the experiences of Odysseus in the cave of the Cyclops, elaborating on events already described in Homer's Odyssey. The play concludes with that seemingly ridiculous and out-of-place episode in the Odyssey, in which Odysseus convinces the Cyclops that his name is Nobody, or No Man, depending on the translation, and the Cyclops Polyphemus cannot get anyone to aid him because he keeps telling his neighbors that, quote-unquote, nobody blinded him. It seems Euripides was not incapable of comedy. 
Among the other plays of his that survived, there are also two plays about Iphigenia, the daughter of Agamemnon. You may remember how I described Iphigenia's death when her father sacrificed her to Artemis before sailing away to the Trojan War. In the plays of Euripides, he tells a different tradition in which Iphigenia does not die at the sacrifice, but instead Artemis replaces her at the last moment with a young deer and spirits her away. Many of Euripides' plays are so good, so well-crafted, in fact, that they would make excellent plays or films for modern tastes, even if you simply presented them as, as they were written some 2,500 years ago. As it is, they were read and reproduced in the Renaissance, and they have provided a lot of direct inspiration to many modern productions about Greek myth that you may have already seen. In the next segment, though, I will describe, with a little more detail than I usually do, one of Euripides' most powerful works, the play known as Medea. Medea is a play that is actually neither about the Trojan War nor about Heracles. Here, Euripides writes about another topic from Greek mythology, the voyage of Jason and the Argonauts. Or rather, he writes about the postscript to that fabled adventure, the events which followed upon Jason's return from his quest to find the Golden Fleece. The play opens in Corinth, the city to which, to which Jason has repaired after his quest, which probably would have taken place on the Black Sea coast somewhere. Jason has fled to Corinth after the success of his quest due to complications caused by Medea when she essentially murdered the rival of Jason's family through witchcraft, and the two of them, Jason and Medea, had to flee. They have been received warmly in the city of Corinth. In fact, by the opening of the play, Jason has taken the daughter of Creon, the king of Corinth, in marriage, and he has abandoned Medea. Worse, he has also abandoned the two children, which Medea has already borne to him. This is the substance of the tragedy as the play opens, with the nurse of Medea bemoaning her mistress's suffering to the chorus of the play. The chorus is made up of a crowd of Corinthian women, and, and this is actually a pretty traditional function of the chorus in these plays, to come out onto the stage and provide backstory, either in monologue or dialogue, before the action of the play gets underway. Medea adds to the litany of woe herself presented here when, when she comes on stage shortly thereafter. She wails regret for all the sacrifices that she made to be with Jason. Having abandoned her father and slain her brother and traversed so much of a treacherous world, only to see Jason now with another woman, only to see him forsake the sons that she has given him. Medea, in fact, here presents a remarkable laundry list of complaints about the trials of womanhood and the compromises that women must make in order to adapt their lives to, their, to lives with their husbands. And Euripides, the writer of the play, through the char this character of his, notes that women actually are the much hardier of the two sexes when she describes the challenges of childbirth with the following words. Men say that we live secure at home while they are away at wars. This is sorry reasoning. I would gladly go to battle three times over rather than give birth just once. Though a woman might be fearful and cower at the sight of a steel blade, she goes on to say, in the moment that she finds her honor wronged, no heart is filled with deadlier thought than hers. And this is, of course, a foreshadow to the end of the play. 
Not to be missed here is Medea's pride. She invokes her descent from the sun god Helios and asserts that a woman as great as her may not be so maligned, so insulted in this way. Then she calls on Hecate for assistance. Now, Hecate is a goddess about whom I've spoken before in the fifth episode of this series. She appears to have held many functions in Greek religious thought and was apparently far more important than you might imagine if you're only familiar with the 12 Olympian gods as fundamental to Greek mythology line of thought. I will come back to the, develop, to the development of Greek spirituality in a future episode, but in the meantime, here Medea says, By that dread queen whom I revere before all others and have chosen to share my task, by Hecate who dwells within my inmost chamber, not one of them shall wound my heart and live to regret it. After Medea vaunts her heritage on stage and vows vengeance openly, we see Jason appear. He tells her that she will be banished for her foolish words. In response, Medea calls her former husband a villain and reminds him that he would be nothing without her, that she saved his life, in fact. And Jason is just as unrelenting and proud. He reminds her of how much he has given her. Most important to him is that he has brought her to live in Hellas, which is the Greek word for Greece, and that she no longer lives among barbarians. So proud were the Greeks that they could not imagine anyone living anywhere else to really be civilized. Basically, several pages of this stage dialogue are really just a fierce marital argument, each spouse tearing the other down, making threats, reminding the other of all that they have done for their sake. If you've ever been married, the dialogue may be a trip down memory lane. Eventually, Jason relents somewhat and offers some of his fortune to help Medea and the children get on in whatever land they choose to reside, but Medea refuses all charity, and Jason departs. Here, the chorus laments all romance and prays that Aphrodite, who is here invoked as, quote-unquote, the Cyprian goddess, the chorus prays that Aphrodite never fires an arrow from her golden bow at them. The arrow is described as dripping with, quote-unquote, passion's venom. Better a life of chastity, the chorus assures us. Now, while the story of Medea may seem far away from matters concerning Athens, there is a connection, and it manifests at this point in the play. Aegeus appears on the stage. Aegeus, if you remember from the fifth episode of this series, Aegeus was the father of Theseus and the ruler in ancient Athens long before the classical age. Here Medea meets him, and they counsel one another, as Aegeus, as yet, has no children, and he's on his way to a fateful meeting in the Peloponnesus. Medea begs Aegeus to receive her if she should arrive at his hall someday, and he agrees before he leaves the stage. Now, Medea has therefore solved her most pressing problem with, with regard to taking bloody revenge on Jason and his new wife. She knows that she'll be hunted if she commits these murders that she's planning, but if she has sanctuary with a ruler, then she will have nothing to worry about. Aegeus, of course, was unaware of any of this when he made the promise, and later he will receive Medea and protect her, and she will go on to be an opponent of Theseus when he comes to claim his inheritance in Athens. But that's the subject of another play and another myth. Anyway, after Aegeus exits the stage, uh, Medea explains her horrible plan in full to the audience. She will send a servant to beg Jason for permission for the, her children to stay in Corinth, and she will go into exile herself alone. 
And she will send the children themselves with appeasing gifts for Jason's new wife. So she's going to send gifts to the woman who has taken her husband away. A beautiful robe and something described in translation alternately as a golden chaplet or a hairband or a coronet. Anyway, something fine made of gold and meant to be worn on the head. But these ornaments will bring a painful death upon whoever wears them, she informs us. And then, Medea declares, with Jason's wife dead, she will go one step further to inflict pain on her ex-husband. She will slay the young sons that the two share with her own hands. Why kill her own children, you might ask? And the Chorus does ask this. Medea explains, because that will hurt her ex-husband even more. This will stab him in the heart. Now, Jason does relent when he listens to her, and the children are allowed to bring the gifts to his new wife. And, of course, Medea does not explain the plan to Jason. She only apologizes and and begs for her children to stay. So the children return to the stage with a messenger who informs Medea that they have been allowed to remain. And this is after they've turned over the gifts to Jason and his new wife. Now, Medea laments that she must now say goodbye to her children. And in the audience, we know, of course, that she's really crying over the cruel deed that she's now going to perform, knowing that her romantic rival now possesses the fatal gifts and that she will soon be dead and all will soon be out to persecute the murderer. The children then exit, apparently going into some sort of artificial structure on the stage that would have represented Medea's dwelling. Another messenger arrives soon on stage and recounts the terrible death of Jason's young new wife. After she put on the robe, she foamed at the mouth, he says, and her eyes rolled back in her head. She turned pale and screamed. Then the golden chaplet on her head burst into flame. As the messenger puts it, blood and fire mingled, running down from atop her head, and the flesh peeled away from her bones. Hell hath no fury. Then, the messenger describes, the young bride's father rushed in and embraced his dying daughter, only to discover that whatever furious poison that was at work in his daughter's new robe now also held him fast, unable to let go of his daughter's tortured corpse and unable to get away from whatever had killed her. In agony, he died, clutching his daughter's corpse, his flesh also peeling away as he tried to escape the fatal embrace. Medea declares that now her children are doomed, and she must be inferring that her children will not be allowed to live here in Corinth after this deed, after she, their mother, slayed the ruling family with a gift given through the hands of her children. So, since they must die, she declares that she will do it with her own hand. Medea then exits the stage, presumably getting behind whatever facade represented her home in Corinth, and then we, see, we hear her sons cry out as she comes after them with a knife. And after their pathetic cries die down and we realize that they've been killed, Jason appears on stage and informs the chorus that he seeks Medea to hold her responsible for the death of his new bride and his father-in-law, but also to save his children from the vengeance of the crowd. But immediately he learns from the chorus that Medea has slain his sons as well. Then something incredible occurs on the stage. According to the stage notes in the play, Medea appears in the sky, riding in a chariot drawn by dragons. Next to her on the chariot lay the bodies of her two sons. 
This must have involved some pretty innovative stagecraft for the time period. Here, anyway, Medea and Jason have their final ghastly marital flap, each blaming the other and their actions for what has happened. Before Medea flies away in her dragon-drawn chariot, she declares that she will expiate her sins, so to speak, by ordaining a solemn feast and holding sacred mystical rites to atone for it all. Their final words to each other are hard, of course, but the interchange of the final bits of dialogue are worth hearing. Jason unleashes at his ex-wife, Fie upon thee, witch! Child murderess! And Medea replies, Go bury thy wife! And Jason says mournfully, I go, bereft of my sons. And then Medea twists the knife even more. Thy grief is yet to come. Wait till old age comes upon you. The chorus ends the play with a quote that I've used before in this podcast. And the the philosophical phrasing in this quote is one that Euripides actually used more than once in ending his plays. It goes like this. Often the gods bring things to pass beyond man's expectation. That which we thought would be is not fulfilled, but for the unexpected, God always finds a way. A couple things about that traumatic final scene before I conclude this episode. First, you may have noticed that all this violence happened off stage. I have mentioned this before, that the Greeks did not display violence on the stage. Violence would always happen off stage or be reported by someone after the fact. And then, as in Aeschylus's Agamemnon, perhaps the curtain would open on someone standing over a dead body, or someone would enter from off stage and display their physical trauma, as in Sophocles' Oedipus play, when the title character returns from having torn out his eyes. Just so, we do not see Medea kill Jason's new wife, nor do we see her slay her sons. Recall that in the play Agamemnon, we did not see Clytemnestra murder her husband. We only saw her after the deed, standing over the corpse. There are theories about why this is, about why we don't see violence in ancient Greek plays, but there are no real clear answers. Some scholars speculate that it was simply a religious taboo not to display murder. I suppose that is possible, but in a culture which was so used to violence, violence of the most brutal kind in combat, I find that hard to believe. But still, it it may be true. Others speculate that it was simply a literary technique, just as filmmakers today might not show the monster in a horror film in order to build up suspense and to let let the imagination of the viewer run wild. I suppose that also could be true, but if it were, then wouldn't there also be artists who chose not to use that technique? And so we would have Greek tragedy versions of slasher films. I'm not sure what is true about the methodology here. I only know that it is consistent. You can always expect violence in a Greek play to be hidden from the audience. Regarding the audience, I think it is also important to remember when you read this and other Greek plays that it is easy, maybe desirable, to distance yourself from the drama, from the tragedy, from the emotions of the characters. But as Aristotle says, this was not mere entertainment for the Greek audiences. Stage plays are descended from religious rites, and the people who watched them were meant to experience catharsis, an engagement in the passions of the acting and the stage work. 
When ancient Greek audiences watched the family violence of a play like Medea, this was a subject that they all probably knew familiarly. The, the horrible way that uh, married couples can stick the knife in one another, can respond with exaggerated savagery to the wrongs and slights of their relationship. Surely the people in the audience watching Medea also knew of the phenomenon that we now call the family destroyer, right? The angry spouse, male or female, who decides that the ending of their marriage really means the end of the world and chooses to take everyone with them in a suicidal episode of brutality. You see, this moment at the end of the play when Medea murders her own children, it would not have been a shocker for the audience. They already knew the myth. It wasn't like a modern audience viewing a film with a plot twist or an unexpected turn of events and then thrilling at the horror. Rather, these tragedies would have immersed ancient Greeks in their own lives, in their own memories, in their own struggles and fears. There, though there is much similarity between the ancient Greek drama and our own forms of entertainment today, Greek tragedy is much closer to the dramatic ancestor, which was a religious rite, remember, not merely a pleasant distraction from the cares of life like a modern movie might provide. No, the play prompted reflection and catharsis in a way that few of us today may understand. You may have noticed that the recent episodes have become a little crowded with familiar names, such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, and so on. We are entering into a crucial period for Western civilization. Greece is about to produce some of the most striking and unforgettable personages in history at a time, oddly enough, when it is undergoing some societal miseries that threaten its very existence. Indeed, you might consider this time period, beginning with the Peloponnesian War in the late 5th century BC, and extending all the way to the rise of Macedonia in the mid-4th century before Christ, you might consider this juncture something like a period of catharsis for our Western traditions, a moment in which an entire population takes an inward look, confronts its demons, and comes out of the experience transformed. In the next episode, I will return to the Peloponnesian War, but expect that there will now be more stops along the way through this war as I delve into the lives of various leaders, thinkers, and writers who expanded not just the physical frontiers of Greece, but also the frontiers of our minds. In the meantime, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.